Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. We want to receive the Word of God with all joy like the Bereans, but we want to search the Scriptures to find out whether or not these things are so. The Bible tells us clearly that to be thoroughly equipped, that we need to receive the inspired Word of God, which is good for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that God might be able to use that in our lives. It works in the lives of those who believe. So that is our authority. That is what we believe. We want to base everything on Scripture and Scripture alone. Now, it's good to see you guys here. As always, uh, good to see you guys uh, logging on, although that isn't right. Uh, good to see you guys logging on. Nice to have you here. Uh, I hope you guys are are blessed today, and I hope that God blesses you by the time that you spend here uh, today. So we um, had a question in our last Q&A on the deity of Jesus. It, in fact, it was about explaining the deity of Jesus to an ex-Muslim that was just struggling with how the Bible declares Jesus as being God. And I dealt with it a little bit out of John chapter one, but I didn't, I wanted to deal with it more. So I thought we would use that as a first question today. And uh, we wanna first of all, take a look at what John chapter one has to say compared to what Genesis says about the creation of the earth and the creation of man. So I'm going to start with Genesis, and this is Genesis chapter 1. I mean, you guys know this verse well. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Sorry about scrolling there. Um, In the beginning, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the word for God there is Elohim. It is Yahweh, the supreme being of the universe. We learn throughout the Bible that he is the creator of the world, and and, and there is none like him. There is none that can be compared to him. And then I just want to come down here to verse 25, and I want to show you that right in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, we get the complexity of God that's spoken about, in starting in verse 25. Here it says, I'll put it back on the screen for you here, and God made the beasts, let's see, um, actually in verse 20, 20 yeah, 26, uh, it says, um, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, Dr. Michael Heiser and others will say that this is a heavenly council that's meeting in Genesis 1 over the creation of the earth and that God, the supreme being, says to the other Elohims that are there because the word Elohim could mean gods as well, that this is a a reference to this council. But it can't be that not the way it reads. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Not unless you believe that that heavenly council has creative power. Because he says, let us make man in our own image in the likeness of God. And then it says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle over all of the earth and over the creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man. The one who made man was God who created them. So this is the the Trinity interacting with one another in the first chapter of the Bible. We find the complexity of God. Who's the us? Then God said, let us make man in our image. Who is it who has the ability to create and to make in the Bible? 
All right, now I want to go to John chapter 1. Re just kind of remembering that passage, let's go to John chapter 1. Let's take a look at what John says about the creation of the world and the one who created it. Remember there it says that God, the supreme being of the universe, said, let us make man in our own image. So there was a complexity there. Now we go to John chapter 1. And this is what I looked at last week. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Now there it is. The one who created was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and nothing that was made without Him was made. So now we learn that that complexity in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 is now Jesus. And here it goes on to say um, that, um, let's see, verse 1, I think verse 8, uh, that, is it 8? Uh, he was the light. No, verse uh, 14. It goes on to say that he became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us as we beheld the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and mercy. So the one who created everything that was part of the us, let's make man in our own image, in the Genesis that created the entire world was Jesus who became flesh. And it will go on to say that we beheld the glory of the only begotten of the Father. So literally not begotten Son, but of the only begotten of the Father. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, literally the only begotten, has, uh, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. So the creation account reveals to us clearly that Jesus is God. Now, also in Isaiah 9, 6, we have an Old Testament passage that talks about the complexity of God again. So here in Isaiah, uh, we have a child who is going to be born that is given to the entire world. And just a quick word about Isaiah. It was thought that this passage in Isaiah had been tampered with. Uh, because we had the, the, our oldest copy of Isaiah was not very old, but then the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947, 1947, and we had a, a complete copy of Isaiah that was uh, conservatively a hundred years before the time of Christ. So it couldn't have been tampered with by the church. And this passage was in it. This is Isaiah 9:6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. So there would be a child that would be born given to the world. There would be a son that would be born given to everyone. The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. How can the child who was born be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and their peace? There will be no end upon the throne of David and over the kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice. And we know that the Messiah sits on the king, uh, on the throne of David, and that Jesus said to the woman at the well, I am the Messiah. She said, we know the Messiah, when he comes, is gonna restore all things. And he says to her, I am he. So now we have the Bible telling us that this complexity is through a child who was going to be born, who would be called God, and the only one who can fit that bill would be Jesus himself. Now, Hebrews chapter 1 also calls Jesus God. And this is a, a very important verse. I will often use, when Jehovah Witnesses used to come to my door, they haven't come in a long time, but when they used to come to my door, um, I would often use 
that passage out of Isaiah, including Revelation, where God says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, I am the Almighty. Then later on, the Almighty is identified as the one who was dead, um, was alive, is dead, and is alive forevermore. So it's identified as Jesus being the Almighty in the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter one is somewhere you can go for the deity of Jesus as well. But Hebrews chapter one is a very powerful passage for the deity of Jesus. Here it says, God at various times, this is Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, God at various times in various ways spoke in the past to the fathers and prophets, has in these last days spoken to by his son. So we receive clarity on all scripture through the teachings of Jesus, who has appointed heir, who's been appointed heir to all things, through whom also he made the world. So here we have again another, another witness to the fact that the creation in Genesis 1 was indeed Jesus, who being the brightness of the image of the express image of the person, this would be in his um, in his created form or being born on the earth and, and showing God to us, um, the world of his power, when he himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and becoming better than the angels. And then it goes on down in verse eight and says, and this is a quote, a quote from Psalms 45, six and seven. And here we get the complexity of God again. This isn't just a New Testament verse that he pulls out and just decides to call that God calls him God. He's quoting from Isaiah 45, uh, six and seven. And this quote says, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God is forever and ever. So, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, now the Son of God is called God in, in Hebrews 1, and that his throne is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. Anointing, Jesus, the, the Messiah is the anointed one with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, Jesus also declared that he was God in John. Uh, I'm gonna go there now in John chapter, chapter eight, and um, all the way back down to the end of the chapter in verse 58, even before that a little bit. I'm gonna go ahead and put this up on the screen for you as well. Um, so some people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And we're gonna read a passage why Jesus never said, I am God. Now, in a way he did, because in, in Psalms 45, six and seven, it says that God was gonna anoint his son or his son would be God. So the son of God is portrayed in the Hebrew Bible as being God. And then Jesus said, when he was asked, are you the son of God by, the, by Caiaphas, the high priest, Jesus said, it is as you say. So in that he did, but he never came out and said, I'm God, you should listen to me. Why not? Well, listen to this passage in John chapter eight. By saying that he doesn't say he's God, doesn't mean anything because all kinds of crazy people say they're God. So if anybody claims to be God, it doesn't mean anything. Jesus said, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. In other words, if I come out and say that I'm God, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me of whom you say he is your God, yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I, don't, I, do, uh, I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. 
but I know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So how did Abraham see the days of Jesus unless Jesus was alive during the days of Abraham? And Abraham rejoiced to see it. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? So they get exactly what he's saying. And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now the name from the burning bush, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, is the name I am, or the ever-existent one, I am. Jesus says seven times in the book of John, I am. And when he's arrested in the garden, Jesus walks up to him in the book of John and says, who, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Now they put a he in there in italics because it's not in the text. He simply said, I am. And they all fell down on the ground behind him under the power of the proclamation of the I am, fully man and fully God. And so Jesus did declare that he was God. We see this again a little bit clearer, or we see it again in John 20, verse, in John 20, verse, uh, let's see what we got here. John 20, verse uh, 28. Let me see what this is. Um, where, and, and again, here's after the resurrection. And here Thomas has come to see Jesus. And Jesus said, put your hands in my, my palms and in my side. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas calls him God. And there's no correction on Jesus's part. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they believe. So Thomas declared him to be God, and the scriptures let it stand. And that's really important. So uh, just one more, more passage to take a look at, and that's in Colossians. And that's not because these are all the passages in the New, New Testament that talk about Jesus being God, because it's not. It's like the tip of the iceberg. Um, I had somebody tell me one time, the Bible never declares Jesus as God. And I was like, how much time you got? Because the Bible so clearly portrays him as God that even someone who has a Muslim background would be able to look, especially at those creator passages in Genesis and that let us create man and our make man in our own image. So he created them in, the, in his own image. And then it says, in um, John 1 that he created them all? Well, here in Colossians, we have something that is very similar. In Colossians chapter 1, in verses 15 and 7 through 17, here we have an ancient creed from the early church. This is something worth memorizing. Again, it's very powerful. And it, this was very early on in Christendom that this creed was given. The, Christ, the Christology of the church was very high, very early. Uh, some like to say that over time, the myth of Jesus being God was developed, which is absolutely not true. Uh, the Christology of Christ was developed very high, very early. And this is, is was one of those places you can see that. This is Colossians 1.15. This is an ancient creed. He is, in, he is the image of the invisible. Let me get it up here, I'm reading from up here. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn meaning the right of firstborn that inherits everything. So, so don't let them tell you, see, he was firstborn. He was born in creation. We know that nothing was made that wasn't made through him. So he's the firstborn of creation, meaning everything belongs to him and we are co-heirs with him. For by him, here we go, 
all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible. Every angel, every demon, every world, every person, all of the earth, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, that's a list of demonic ranks, all things created through him and for him. And he is before all things. Now, that's very clear. He's before all things and in him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church who is in the beginning of the firstborn of the dead. He was the first one to rise from the dead that in all things he may have preeminence. Preeminence being above everything. So there's just a few verses that help us to understand the deity of Jesus. And I hope we'll put timestamps on all of that down below. Um, just give us, I, I don't know if it'll be up, the timestamps will probably be up a little bit later on today. Keith knows um, when he's gonna be able to put those timestamps up, but we'll have the timestamps for all of those passages. So if you want to come back later and kind of write them down and take them down as notes um, or even take a picture of it in your notes and put it in your notes, then when you have time, you can go study it later because you ought to have a good solid grasp on what the Bible teaches about the deity of Jesus because it is so very powerful and important. And if I had to talk with a, a Muslim and try to show them that the Bible teaches Jesus as God, that's the verses that I would go to. Um, whether a Christian or not, I would do that. All right. So uh, our first question today, and good to see you guys. Good to have you here with us. Our first question today uh, comes from uh, Fact Check These Hands. And Fact Check These Hands says, once God gives someone over to a debased mind. All right. So we're talking about Romans 1. Or Romans. We're talking about Romans. Uh, is the person ever able to realize they are wrong, on a wrong path and repent? Or are they too far gone to be reached with the gospel? I um, I don't know if I can find that passage quickly. I would love to be able to look at the passage. I think it might help us with it. The, the question is Romans, where when Romans says, speaking specifically of those who exchange the function of a man and a woman for the same sex. Is that unforgivable? And then when God gives them over to a debased mind, the act itself would not be unforgivable. We would know that. But when God gives them over to a debased mind, is the Bible then saying that once God's done that, they cannot be saved? And I I, I don't have time to take, I, I don't want to take time to, to look it up. Fact check these hands. If you can look up the reference and give it to me a little bit later on, I'll look for it. And I really do appreciate you guys. I want to see if this is working yet. Um, nope. All right. So I really appreciate you guys um, being here and keeping the chat somewhat relevant to our topic. I told you we were going to be asking that over the next few over the next few um, Q and A's. I think it will make it more powerful if we are interacting over the topics. You can add something. You can ask another question about it. Uh, you can um, uh, you can add something to it that I didn't add to it. I, I think our the community that we have can make this very powerful. So I don't believe that being given over to a debased mind in Romans speaks of them being unforgivable from that point on. I think what it means is, is that God just gives them over to it. They are searching for that and God gives it over to it and they just get worse and worse into it. That's what I think it means that they get worse and worse into their perversions and 
I, I, don't, I don't think that they cannot see the light of the gospel or be drawn out of it. I think we can pray for them. I think we can preach to them. I think God can bring them out of that. Uh, there are many homosexuals that have given their lives to Christ, that have repented from it, given their lives to Christ. Some still have the temptation of being attracted to the same sex, but have given up any does any fulfillment of that because they want to be obedient to God and others have been delivered from that desire for the same sex. Um, and so all I can do is tell you what their, their testimonies are. And I believe that even though they've done that and maybe even been given over to that debased mind, that they were able to continue to come to Christ. Although I reserve my right to change my mind once I look at the text, all right? Remember, the Word of God is the ultimate authority. Sometimes we forget exactly what's being said in certain places, and so it helps us. All right, Andre, uh, slipping a little bit. You got number two instead of number one. Fact check these hands beat you out today. Andre says, when countries such as Australia turn their backs on um, and reverse their decision to recognize Israel's capital, can they expect to be cursed? Genesis 12, 2 and 3. So this is the promise in Genesis that God is going to bless those who bless Abraham and curse those who curse him. So let's go. Um, we're going to go here. Thank you, Andre, for your question. Um, is there another place besides Genesis 12, 2 and 3 where this promise is stated? Let's read the way this reads, and I'll, and I'll explain why I think that's the case. And, I, and I'm going to, um, I'm going to go ahead and start this from verse one. Now the Lord said to Abraham, "Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you." Now we know that's the land of Canaan. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, it's great that all the families of the earth that are going to be blessed are from Jesus that comes through the Jewish people. And that's absolutely phenomenal. Now, the question is, Andre, is this saying of Abraham or of Israel? And that's why I think it's reiterated in another place. And you can go back and you can look at this and say, you know, he's going to make a great nation of them and I will bless those who bless you. Is it a promise directly to Abraham or is it a promise to Israel? And if it's a promise to Israel, is Israel cursing them by saying that Jerusalem is not their capital? By reversing, by the way, because um, a former, what do they call him, prime minister? A former prime minister had declared Jerusalem be the capital and now they've reversed that. Is that cursing them? Uh, Again, I don't know. I guess I would I would leave that up to God. I would think that there could be a way in which they are cursed if God deems that to be a curse. I, I would say that this verse, in my opinion, would be to Abraham and to the nation that he's going to make, which is that great nation. Um, I think the, this promise is reiterated somewhere else. I can't remember where and don't have time to look that up. So if you guys can find the other place that the Bible reiterates that, I think it reiterates it to Israel. And um, if people curse Israel, then they'll be cursed. And I think that's still in play. There's no reason for us to think it. And if we bless Israel, then we'll be blessed. And there are many that believe that we are a blessed nation because when Israel became a nation, we helped them. Now, 
Could we have helped them more during the War of Independence? Yeah, we could have helped them more. But maybe we didn't help them more, and we finally did. We finally did. Um, because God was delivering them. By all accounts, they should not have won the War of Independence, but they did. And it's amazing. And when you go back and you look at it and you study exactly what was done, some movies have been made about it that are absolutely phenomenal because they were attacked on all sides when they were declared, when they declared themselves a nation and they won and the United States ended up backing them. A lot of our military equipment from World War II was shipped directly over to them. And because of that, I think that, that the United States truly is blessed. If you go and you look at the real blessed period of the United States, you could go to the 1920s and you could say that that was a time of, of, um, of influence and, and wealth in the United States, but nothing like you would find in the 50s and 60s, which was a great time of growth and God really blessing the United States. And I do believe that it was in connection to Israel. So I think that's the case. And is, is, could Australia be in danger of being cursed? Well, I guess that's God's business. And if they, he considers that to be a curse. All right. Thank you, Andre. I appreciate that. Um, so Jari says, good to see you, Jari, by the way. Jari says, Peter's temptation was to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Peter's temptation was it to prevent Jesus from going to the cross, not falling asleep. Remember afterwards, he took the sword, but cut off the ear and and he watched and prayed, he wouldn't give, he wouldn't have thanks. He wouldn't have thanks. Had he watched and prayed, he wouldn't have. Yeah, I, I do believe that. Jesus told him in the garden, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. He told him specifically to him in one of the gospels. So Peter could have watched and prayed, and then he would have never have had Jesus telling him, before the rooster crows this night, you're gonna deny me three times. So the temptation was not to have Jesus crucified. The temptation for Peter was that he was going to be tempted to deny him. Everything was going to go to the denial. And so he could have watched and prayed that he could escape temptation so that he would not have been tempted to deny him. He could have never have tempted to deny him. And he could never have denied him had he not been tempted to deny him. And so we are supposed to pray in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us. Uh, do not lead us into temptation and deliver us from evil. Both very important things for us to pray on a regular basis. And if we, we don't even know, if we're praying fervently, Lord, don't lead me into temptation. If you don't pray that, pray it. Maybe you're giving into temptation because you don't pray, you don't ask God not to deliver you from temptation. So pray that and ask God to deliver you. And God can deliver you from and then, and then you won't even know it. You won't even know that the temptation was there because if you weren't led into temptation, then you weren't tempted. And you say, well, why would God lead me into temptation? Because God wants to forge us. Why did God lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? There was, he had a plan for it. And God will lead us if he has a plan. And I wonder if it is our prayerlessness, not seeking God, there's the inner growth that's not happening because we are not praying and seeking him so that when we do pray and begin to ask for him to deliver us from the evil one and not to lead us into temptation, that God does that. So that was Peter's temptation. And he didn't, he slept instead. And for that, he found himself in the, 
inner courtyard of the high priest, I think, and Jesus being beaten and Peter denying him. Then he looked across the courtyard, saw Jesus, caught Jesus, they had eye contact, and Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Would have never have happened had he prayed that he would not be led into temptation. So Heavenly, I like that, Heavenly, says, do you think the Bible is equal to Jesus, to Father God, to the Holy Spirit, just um, serious what you believe? Just curious what you believe. Thank you. <laughs> serious, just serious what I believe. No, the Bible is not equal to Jesus. So when we talk about the scriptures, and I wish I'm looking at my Bible on my desk. Um, if we if we take the scriptures, if we take a Bible, I used to when I was a youth pastor, this is a long time ago, I used to talk about how the Bible itself, the actual physical Bible is not sacred. The question had come up and back in those days, there were these guys lying about being Satanists. Remember Mike Warnke and some other guys who claimed that they were Satanists. Later on, we found out that it was never true, but they claimed that during their Satanist then when they were leading the Satanist movement, a high priest in the Satanists, which it wasn't, none of it was true, that they had taken Bibles and they'd burned them um, as a way to, you know, really speak against God. And so I took a Bible and I said, this Bible itself, the, the actual Bible is not sacred. And I would throw it on the floor. Now I don't do that anymore as an illustration. I wouldn't do it here if I was here with you guys today, just because I, I've grown in my respect towards the word of God that I don't want to handle the word of God in that way. But I think my point was correct. That, that, that Bible itself is, is nothing. And God's words to us are not Jesus. We don't worship the Bible. We don't worship scripture. We worship Jesus. And you said, well, Jesus is called the word and the word of God is called the word of God. And that is true. But there's still a distinction between the law, the prophets, the, the, the wisdom books, the gospels, the book of Acts, the history books, uh, the epistles and the apocrypha book of Revelation and Daniel and, um, and Zacharias and others, and they're not being Jesus. So no, the word of God, the written word of God is not Jesus. So where the written word of God says that God's word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, it's not saying Jesus is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's actual God's written word and given to us as a gift. And it is not deity. How then is in John chapter one, verse one, Jesus, the word of God. In the beginning, it says God spoke into existence and Jesus was the part that brought the word of God into existence. And so there's a, there's a metaphor being used there of the power of the spoken word of God and Jesus being that word of God. We could say that the Bible is a part of God's word, but we would never say that the Bible is God. And so this is, a, this is an accusation that we Calvary chapels get that we are worshiping the Bible because we want to study the Bible every time we come together because we give it a high place in our lives. And um, no, the word of God is not God and neither do we worship it. That's silly, uh, but we do believe it is our authority given to us by God. And um, there is 
at this point for me, some mystery in John chapter one on how Jesus is the word of God. Uh, someone may be able to clarify that to me at some point or as I continue to search that out. Um, I think there probably is clarity to that. Uh, but to me right now, it's a mystery. But I do not believe that we are worshiping God. All right. So it's good to see you guys, by the way. Um, good to see you guys interacting. Um, so Heavenly uh, has another question. Let's see. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and bring Heavenly in. Heavenly, Heavenly, which is spelled interesting. I do like it. Um, Heavenly has another question. We usually take one question per person, Heavenly, just so you know. Um, but it's good to have you here. I think it's your first time here with us. Um, interesting, we are baptized first by water and then by fire. Seems the earth goes through the same thing. Do you think there's a connection between the two? All right, so thank you. Um, we are baptized first by water and then by fire. Uh, I would like to know what your reference is to the fire. So Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit and with fire. In that passage in Matthew, if you go on in context, it says, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's talking about separating the wheat from the chaff and he burns the chaff. So it seems like the baptism in fire is the destruction. When we receive the Holy Spirit for the very first time in Pentecost, there were tongues of fire over people's heads. Uh, and it seems like water baptism is not connected to baptism by fire. Now, I, I will get Pentecostals really upset with me at that point when I, when I start talking about it. And I don't know, Heavenly, whether you are Pentecostal or not because they see the baptism as fire with fire as being something very powerful and passionate. Um, but the baptism by water comes after you believe. And you may have received the Holy Spirit before you got baptized. So you, you, you the Holy Spirit comes inside of you as soon as you're born again. And then there may be an empowering. I believe that there's an empowering that, that continues to go on. It's not a one time, um, like second experience, it's just one time. It's a continual empowering as you're doing God's work. He's empowering you to do the work of the gospel. And that could have happened before you were baptized. So I don't know of any passage that would say that we are then baptized in fire as Christians, that we are baptized in fire. I think Jesus is saying something different in context. Or John the Baptist is saying something in difference when he says the one comes after me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will separate the wheat from the chaff and the wheat he will put into barns and the chaff he will burn with fire. So that's the context of that passage. And all I can do is go to the context. I, I would rather go to the context than to try to go to traditionally what a certain group has called it, even though that certain group may get upset with me um, and angry because I don't keep what they're what they say. All right, Heavenly, thank you. And you can give a follow-up, by the way, to either one of your questions. Uh, so we have a question from Cheryl. Uh, Cheryl, good to have you here. Uh, Cheryl joins us from YouTube. And Cheryl says, um, Matthew 17, 20, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. To my knowledge, no one has ever moved a mountain. Does this mean we all are lacking adequate faith? Uh, good question, Sharon. Uh, so, yeah, Jesus said a couple of things. He said, you can remove, say this mountain be removed and cast in the sea. You can say this tree be removed and cast into the sea. He's obviously talking in an allegorical sense. It's a metaphor that I'm, I can remove 
trees from my life by faith. I can remove mountains from my life and maybe even the life of other people around me with the faith the size of a mustard seed. None of us have ever seen a mountain flying through the air. And I don't think it's literal at all. I think he's saying, even if you've got a mountain in your life, whatever mountain that would be, faith the size of a mustard seed can move it. Now let's think about what that's teaching. Do you have a lot of faith? There's some people have the gift of faith. Some people have a lot of faith. They trust in God completely and totally. Other people struggle with faith and they have some doubts and they struggle with their faith, but they end up doing what God wants them to do. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, you don't need a lot of faith, but the faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. Faith is, is it's that Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's, that's Romans 10, 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when I hear God's word, I'll give you an example. In Hebrews chapter 11, it said, by faith, the children of Israel uh, crossed the Red Sea. So Moses is praying. God stops him, says, raise up your staff. He raises up a staff. The Red Sea parts. The army of the Egyptians are behind them. And Moses says, go on, go through the Red Sea. And the one at the front might have looked and went, uh, there's water standing up on each side of us. How do I know it's going to stay? I don't think it's going to happen. But somebody with great faith behind him who believed the word of God, go through it. I'm going to protect you through this by faith entered in believing the water was going to stay up. And by the time he got halfway through, everybody that was there was rushing through it because even though they had a little bit of faith, they weren't the first one to go into the Red Sea. They had enough to get in there. The faith, the size of a mustard seed gives you enough faith to be able to enter in. It says by faith, they kept the Passover, which means they slaughtered the lamb, put the blood on the door so the death angel could pass over. Maybe somebody did it with a great deal of faith, believing that God was going to save their firstborn, never questioning, just doing it. Others thought this is ridiculous. It's bloody. Why do I have to smear blood on a door? I don't want to do this, but I'll do it because I kind of like my firstborn son. And so they do it. Well, which one does the death angel pass over? Both of them. The one that had a huge amount of faith and the one that had faith the size of a mustard seed. That's why Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. Because we're doing the word of God, what God promises us. And since God's never given us a command to throw the mountain into the sea, then he's speaking in an allegorical sense. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Um, if God ever gives us a direct command that we should cast a mountain into the sea or a, or a tree into the sea, then we can put our faith in it and see it done. But we trust in God's word by faith and faith the size of a mustard seed moves things. Um, Jesus also said that to his disciples when they asked to increase our faith. And remember there's that teaching of the, the, the false teaching of the faith movement that we all have a faith container inside of us and more faith we get inside of it the more we can do, the more we can move mountains. And I put my cassette plate on when my baby was in, in the in the crib as a baby so that the word of God could bring faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So they completely misunderstood it. They thought a baby could have a tape playing and a faith container in that baby would be filled up. But you have to understand what you're reading and then believe it. And then putting a little bit of trust in what God says is extremely powerful. So they have a complete lack of understanding as to what that Bible says. Faith does not, the, Kenneth Hagin wrote a book called Have Faith in Your Faith. 
To have faith in your faith is to have faith in nothing powerful. My trust or my faith is only as powerful as what I put my faith in. And if I put my faith in faith, it means nothing. It has to be put in God and on the things that God has called us to do. All right, thank you. And we have Daru with us again. Daru, good to see you. Uh, question. Um, yep, Drew, I, remember I answered your question at the very beginning of this. Uh, Drew says, my wife has asked me about Jesus. If he is God, why did he have to die? And why he could, couldn't save himself being killed? This is a common question my wife keeps asking. Thank you, Daru. I appreciate it. And let's cover these one at a time, okay? So first of all, if he is God, if Jesus, if he is God, why did he have to die? Because he was dying for the sins of the world. And this was foretold, Daru. Now listen carefully to this. This was foretold in the Old Testament in different places, but clearly and specifically in the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53. In, uh, and I'm, I'm gonna read it from verse one here because it's about Jesus. Jesus said, Jesus claimed this passage for himself when he told his disciples in the upper room I must be numbered with the transgressors. And you can read from Isaiah 52, 12 to Isaiah 53, 15, and all of that applies to Jesus. But it foretells his suffering for the sins of mankind. So I'm gonna put this up on the screen, Daru, and we can take a look at it. So this is why Jesus had to die, because he was dying for the sins of the world. Without him, no one can be saved. Even Abraham, is accredited righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ, even though he didn't know the name of Jesus, but he trusted in the Messiah's work and therefore he was saved. So here's Isaiah 56, uh, thus says the Lord, keep justice and righteousness for my salvation. Am I in the right passage here? Isaiah 50, how about we go to Isaiah 53? So listen carefully, Daru, it's Isaiah 53, not 56, all right? Isaiah 53, so you go to 52, 12 to 53 and there, so it says, who has believed our report? A lot of people don't believe the report of Jesus. And whom has the art of the Lord been revealed? What God's doing, the strength of God, whom has it been revealed? For he grew up before him as a tender plant, a root out of dry ground. Jesus grew up in the presence of God, a man, God becoming a man. He had no form of comeliness and we uh, and uh, when and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I don't think this is after he's beaten. I think it's just saying Jesus wasn't a, a, didn't didn't come as a, a man really good looking with all this you know these looks for charisma. There was something else about him. It says he was he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid as as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I think that was done in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Here we go. This is the Old Testament. This is the book of Isaiah. Jewish scholars, Jewish rabbis have argued over years who was afflicted for transgressions and tried to, and tried to say it's not Jesus, but it keeps coming back with it. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. He was beaten all that night for our peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We could go on and read, but I'll encourage you to go on and read that later on. Right there it is. 
Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It's very clear. That's not the only passage that tells us. And Daru, what I would do if I were you, is I would do my own personal Bible study on the Old Testament passages that predict the death of Jesus. Go to Psalms 22, very important passage. In, in this passage, it says he was pierced. In Psalms 22, they pierced his hands and his feet. And it's actually Jesus, because it starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Psalms 22, Isaiah 53, many other passages that tell us why Jesus had to die. It was for the sins of mankind. So if he was God, why did he have to die? For the sins of mankind, Isaiah 53, 6. Her second question is, um, and why he couldn't save himself from being killed. Now, again, because he had submitted, he could have. He could, he told angel, he told Peter, put away your sword. I could call a legion of angels to help me now. One angel killed 144, 184,000 people in the Old Testament. A legion is a thousand. He could have called a legions of angels to rescue him. He could have come down from the cross if he wanted to. He was with his own, with his power as God, but he submitted to the will of the father. He submitted to what was going to happen in the garden of Gethsemane. He said, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Obviously, the answer was not possible. Nevertheless, my will, but your will be done. And so he submitted to the will. So he could have stopped it. He could have got it from the garden and walked away. In, in times in his ministry, he walked in their midst when they wanted to kill him. And he just walked out of their midst. In the early part of his ministry in Nazareth, he reads the, the Isaiah 60, which is about the Messiah, the anointed one. And he puts it down and says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And they want to kill him and they bring him out to a cliff to throw him off, but he passes through their midst. So he did stop himself from dying until it was time for him to be the sacrifice for mankind. Remember John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And the Bible teaches us that he is the, that he is the Passover lamb. This is so much more rich. The death angel passes over us because Jesus is our Passover lamb. This is so rich, Daru. And I, I hope that you are able to really take this and, and show it to your wife in a really powerful way because I think it will be helpful. And I will, I will continue to, to answer your questions and help you to get more specific as you need it, Daru. All right? So just keep asking the questions. I appreciate that. So Susan says, um, I think regarding fact check these hands questions, well, should we pray for those who may have been turned over to a retrobate mind? I suspect someone and my prayers for him feel blocked. Is God saying to stop? Um, again, I really wish, Susan, that I had the passage in Romans where God says that. What is it, Romans 2? Um, uh, I, 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 I've, I tried to look at it already. I, it would just take too much time for me. To, to stand here and try to look it up while we're talking about this, I would say no. I don't know about your feelings, Susan. Feelings can be deceptive. I'm not saying yours is, but I'm saying feelings can be deceptive. And so I wouldn't go by feelings at all. But I would, for the sake of that person, not stop praying for them. I would not consider them to be lost unless God somehow showed me that they were lost. Giving over to a reprobate mind, 
I don't think means that they cannot be saved. It means God's giving them over to their ways. And again, if if you can find that passage in Romans, we'll take a look at it, and I think it will help us out. All right. So again, um, let's see. Um, Romans twenty six thirty one is about idolatry. Um, yeah, give me the verse that says reprobate mind and I'll take a look at it. All right. For those who are out there, I don't know, Keith, what you want to try to take a look at that. Maybe you already did. And I passed by it. Yeah, Daru, I see Daru shares that his wife's slowly coming out of Islam, but it's very hard. Pray for her. All right. Um, the Bible is so incredibly rich and powerful, but when you're fighting all of those traditions and all those things that you learned, things seem strange and it takes a while. So we will be praying for you, Daru. Okay. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, so we have a follow-up from Fact Check These Hands. Fact Check These Hands says, follow-up. I don't have a specific reference other than what is mentioned in Romans. Yeah, that's the one I'm looking for. I'm looking for the one in Romans. That's what I'm looking for. Um, I'm going to take a moment here and see if I can find it. Uh, and um, I need some of you guys to be um, helpers. <laughs> Help me find a reference when I need it when we're talking about it, so I don't have to take time out of answering questions to go back and look for this. Um, so, um, I'm just gonna take a couple minutes. I'm not gonna take a whole lot of time. Um, the Wrath on Unrighteousness. Um, aha, I think I found it. All right, I'm glad I took a moment here. So, if this is the passage that we're talking about, um, let's go back one verse here. Let's go back to verse 23. Let's go back even farther than that. This is after talking about God revealing light to them and by and revealing himself to them and through creation. He says, um, because although they knew God, because God had revealed it in their hearts and through creation, they did not glorify him as God, um, nor were thankful, but their futile hearts became darkened their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man. Sounds an awful lot like evolution to me, by the way. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanliness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and who worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who lives forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even women exchanged the natural use of what was against nature. Likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of a woman, burned their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving themselves the penalty and the error they are due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to those things which are not fitting being uh, filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, and it goes on. All right, so I think it's I think it's very clear there. And you can go back and look at it a little bit later on, but I think it's very clear there. He's not giving them over to, to unbelief. Uh, it, it, is not, it is not the unforgivable sin. He's giving them over to that lifestyle. You want to reject God? You want to not live for the light that God's given you? then God gives you over to a mind that is going to embrace all of these kind of wicked things. But that doesn't mean God can't give you light 
and through the power of the gospel save you. He's talking about in general, people that reject the light. It would have to be everybody who rejects the light. And then when he goes down to even, you know, their women, he, he goes down to a certain group of them. Uh, but all it's all the people who reject the light of God, of creation and the light that's been given to them eternally. So being given over doesn't mean they are lost. No, do not stop praying for them. Uh, um, uh, who was I just talking to about that? Yeah, so do not start praying, stop praying for them, all right? Um, they can be saved. God can bring them out of that darkness. How many people steeped in darkness have been saved, okay? And even if I thought somehow that they'd cross, the, I would not stop praying for them just in case God could save them. I want to continue to pray for them. So we have another question from Long Story. Long Story says, I believe I'm saved. I know I'm forgiven. I live for Jesus, but I still struggle, suffer mightily with guilt over past deeds. I pray on it continually. Is there relief from this crushing guilt? Yes, um, long story. Your conscience is condemning you, but Jesus is not condemning you. Yeah, and you talk about struggle. So I'm going to, we, we all have, it, the Bible says, if anyone says they don't sin, they're a liar. <laughs> so they really are sinners, although they say they're not sins, they're a liar, first of all. So everyone struggles. The way we overcome that struggle, and I've talked about it before, is to delight ourselves in the Lord, who'll give us the desires of our heart. If we delight ourselves in the world, we're going to have the desires of the world. That the Bible says, if we abide in him, Jesus, and his word abides in us, then we'll ask whatever we desire and it will be given to us. Again, our desires will change. If we abide in his word and his word abides in us, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, the Bible says. So we wanna walk in the spirit. And I love that because it's a positive thing to do, okay? Um, but still we sin. And when we ask for forgiveness, we feel like, why would I forgive me? I don't even know if I would forgive me because the Bible says, that God is more righteous than any man. So why would I forgive me? And Paul was dealing with this exact same thing in the end of Revelation chapter seven. Um, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, which is a great, oh, wretched, um, that's got the line in there, that could save a wretch like me. John Newton was a slave trader for a while. And then he became um, one who fought the slave trade, an abolitionist. Can you imagine the guilt that you would carry? No wonder John Newton said, who saved a wretch like me. Well, Paul had that same problem going on inside of him. And listen to what he says in, in Romans chapter seven. He says, for I delight in the law of God, according to the inner man, inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law in my mind. And and bringing me into captivity, a law to sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Even Paul the apostle had his mind set on God, but his body had, it was still in rebellion. The, the sin nature was still there. And so he asked, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver him from this body of death? And then he says, I thank God through Christ Jesus, so then that with my mind I serve the law, but God with the flesh, 
uh, but uh, serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. So with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. He wasn't teaching that you can go out and be involved in any kind of sin you want to, because one chapter before this, he had said, should we continue in sin, that grace might abound, may it never be. He's just talking about this inner struggle that he's got. And so he's got to somehow settle in on earth here, knowing I'm not perfect. I'm never going to be perfect. Yes, I want to do what God wants me to do. Yes, I'm trying to walk in perfection, but I fail. And what do I do when I fail? Well, that's the very next verse. This is, um, this is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk according, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he comes back to walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So what's happening is that your conscience is condemning you. And this is why the Bible says that if you do something that you think is wrong, might not be wrong, but you think it's wrong, that it's wrong for you to do it because your conscience condemns you. So you've, you've got to somehow receive the forgiveness of God. You, the enemy is coming against you, standing against you, fighting against you. So you need to somehow be able to stand against that and know you're not alone in the struggle. We all do it. You may be to a different degree right now, but we've all gone through it and Paul went through it in Romans 7 and 8. So um, there, there uh, go ahead and look, um, study that last section there in Romans 7 and 8. And um, let's see. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Long story. I, I, I do appreciate that. So Eric um, Mortensen, good to see you. Good to have you here with us. Eric says, question, did God still curse nations or is it about individual relationships to Jesus? Thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. Good to have you here again. Um, so Eric, um, I think God's still the, I think God's the same yesterday, day and forever. And there's no reason for us to think that God in the old Testament would send Jonah to judge Nineveh if God isn't still judging nations today. I think nations are judged. I, I think the United States is in danger of being judged. I think we, yes, we come to Christ now, but remember individuals came to Christ back then as well. They believed and Jesus was the, force, was the source of their salvation, but they didn't know anything about Jesus. They believed God and were saved. The interesting thing is, is that the way we are saved has never changed. We believe God. Abraham believed God. It's just now when we believe God, there's the transformation of the new birth that there wasn't for them, but they still believed God and were saved, but it was accredited unto them righteousness. So yes, I do believe that God still um, judges nations, uh, curses nations. I'm not so sure that I would, that I would use the word curse. Eric, I think that's just a, a preference of words. I would rather say judge than curse. But um, maybe, I mean, sin is is a curse. And um, Eric, when you, you go on to say um, every Muslim nation should be cursed now, I don't know about that. Many Muslims are being saved. Many Muslims are coming to Christ. And God's long-suffering because he desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's even in Muslim nations today. So I, 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 I wouldn't agree with that. I don't think that all Muslim nations should be cursed. One day, God will pour his judgment upon every nation in the world. Uh, there are some pretty horrible things that are going on in certain Muslim, station, uh, Muslim nations, 
Remember, there's two different groups too. There's the Shiite and the Sunni. You can't paint everybody with the same brush. If you're going to compare unbeliever to unbeliever, what's, what's worse? A father that kills his daughter because of Sharia law or a father and mother that kill their unborn baby. We see it from a human perspective, but there's been at least, this is a conservative number, over 40 million babies that have been killed since Roe v. Wade. We ought to be glad that God has mercy on nations. That's in the United States. That's, a, that's an unprecedented number. There, there were not that many slaves killed. There were not that many um, Jews killed in the Holocaust. That's an unprecedented number. It is a Holocaust on the unborn that is unlike anything else. That happened in the United States. We ought to be glad that God doesn't judge or curse nations when they do evil things. So I would, I would not see us, Eric, as being righteous, the righteous United States and the unrighteous Iran or unrighteous Saudi Arabia. I think there are certain things that we do better than them, the way we treat women, uh, women's rights, um, a, a lot of things. But I think there's some things that we do that are worse than them. And one of them is the taking of someone created in the image of God. Before Roe v. Wade was overturned, we had the most liberal, there, there, were, there was no other nation. There were other nations that had as liberal of laws as we did, but none that had more liberal when it came to taking the life of the unborn. So that's pretty heavy and a, and a pretty heavy way for us to end um, this particular Q&A, all right? So um, we ought to pray that God would intervene. I'm telling you, a lot, of, a lot of Muslims are being saved. A lot of them are coming to Christ, which is incredibly powerful. And I would not want to, I don't want to judge other nations. I would rather look at ourselves and be thankful that God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And um, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you guys too. So we have a service in an hour. I got a 35 minute drive to be have to, have to get over to our, our East campus. We already have an East campus and a West campus service tonight. So we have two services um, and we are talking about Thyatira. This was a smaller city than the other cities of the seven letters that were written. Uh, it was a strong church. There's a lot of great things in the church, but there was a certain group of them that were following the teachings of someone that Jesus calls Jezebel. And this certain group was corrupt and God was going to come and judge them. Many people conflate the Thyatira church with the group that he is going to come and, and judge. He says, I gave her room to repent. And if she doesn't repent, I'm going to come, and I'm going to do this and that. And they conflate, conf conflate what he's going to do to the woman and her followers, Jezebel, the, he calls Jezebel her followers, with the church of Thyatira. He has no beef with the church of Thyatira. He's got a beef with those that are in it that are following the doctrines of Jezebel. That's false teaching. It'd be like today if in Calvary, Tucson, there were a group of people believing the doctrine of of um of uh divine you know uh, prosperity the prosperity gospel god would deal with those people inside of the church but not all of calvary chapel 
And so we're going to be talking about that tonight. I really look forward to seeing you guys there. I'm a little bit late now. I got to get going, uh, but I love you. Um, pray for me. I'll pray for you. Let's continue to search the scriptures. I love your questions. Um, dive into the word of God. Let it be what you're looking for. I hope that this Q&A is stirring up a desire in you to know the word of God more and more. And I appreciate you guys um, staying true to the to the um, to the text and the interacting that we're talking more about what's being talked about on the podcast rather than than just letting the you know being silly and being silly once in a while is fine but it needs to be more than that in order for this to really be what it can be and really help people out and it can be more than just me answering someone's question you guys can be giving scriptures and adding in and later on when someone's watching it remember they're watching your text as they go by and so they could see you adding to the things that I'm saying or objecting to it, if you object to it, and, and we'll continue to go through those things. All right? So I really appreciate you guys. Uh, love you. Stay close to Jesus. And uh, we will have another Q&A, Lord willing, this coming up Saturday. And I look forward uh, to sharing with you guys there. If you guys have added comments, I'm going to go back and uh, questions. I'm going to go back and look at the end of this to see if I can find a question for next week's study. All right. So thank you, guys. Love you. I am out. I will see you in about an hour. You can come back on Facebook, YouTube, uh, and you can watch our service or you can come out and join us live if you're in Tucson. All right. God bless you guys. Love you. We'll see you later on.